We've all heard the buy low, sell high investing axiom, and while buying the dip is a relatively straightforward investment strategy, successfully executing it is a lot harder than it looks. But what if you could harness the power of artificial intelligence to remove the guesswork? Joining us now to discuss a recently launched ETF that's designed to do just that is CEO at Kaiju ETF Advisors, Ryan Pinnell. Welcome, Ryan, and thanks so much for joining us. Uh, thanks for having us on today. Well, finding oversold stocks, buying them when they're down, and then flipping them for a profit after they rebound is most certainly an ideal scenario. But for the typical investor and even advisor, it's not an exact science. It's riddled with guesswork and timing risks. So how has DIP removed that guesswork? I think uh, primarily it does so by being able to identify authentic DIPs. So when, I mean, Buy the dip is not a new strategy. It's a fan favorite from the retail investor up to the fund manager side. The challenge becomes, what's a tradable dip? So you're really talking about a stock that becomes artificially oversold, and you get this mean reversion from low to high, this little pop to the upside. And so you're trying to buy it when it's at its low point, and then you know ride it up. The challenge is that not all sell-offs are artificially oversold conditions. So if you've seen something at its previous all-time high and then it sells down, that may be the mean reversion right there. So if you buy it there, it's not going to pop back up. It's actually had an inverse correction. So when we talk about artificially oversold conditions, they're usually conditions in which there was an intraday liquidity pocket or void, that a high-frequency trading firm with the weight that they carry is able to exploit. There's this fast, violent sell-off. It can be intraday. It can be over a couple of days. And then usually that sell-off will collide with an institutional buy zone and heavy accumulation will occur. And you know when you've got a $10 billion HFT running head-on into a $2.6 trillion asset manager, that collision only ends one way. And that's with the asset manager stopping the arresting the descent and sending the the uh, the stock back up, and so that pattern is something that the AI is good at finding uh, within the data that we all consume, price, time, and quantity. And I I sort of I further offer um, this basketball in the swimming pool analogy that I that I've been fond of lately. So if you picture that a basketball floating on the surface of the of a swimming pool is like a stock at its fair market value as determined by the market participants in that stock at that time. Now, it can go up and down. You can add water to the pool. You can remove water from the pool. But the basketball still is floating on the surface of the water. Now, if I put my hand on top of the basketball and I push it underwater, now it's artificially under the surface of the water. I've got it down there. It could stay there, but only so long as I keep my hand on it. As soon as I pull my hand off, it's going to pop back up to the surface and return to its fair market value. So that's what DIP is trying to do. And it can do that because it's able to perform 2 billion discrete examinations every day before it rebalances the portfolio. And that's something that would be very challenging for a human to do, to say the least. Got it. Now let's take a deeper dive into the AI or artificial intelligence that's powering the DIP ETF. Of course, not all AI is created equal. And instead of using a single brain, DIP uses multiple brains. Can you tell us more about that? Yeah, I mean, you know, we, we 
talk about artificial intelligence all the time like it's just this one thing like it's a it's a box on your shelf or you know internally and in interviews we we call it the machine as if it was just a, a single thing and it's really not it's a it's a whole bunch of layered technologies on top of each other and the way that uh, ai systems like ours work is a collaborative collection of what we call neural nets which is just a fancy way of saying like little brains and so each neural net is tasked with a specific uh, goal, a specific thing that it needs to solve for. So in our universe of stocks that we consider, which are largely the S&P components, um, we've got at least two neural nets that are active on each stock, an upside and a downside neural net. We run uh, two other discrete neural nets. One is called re regime classification. And then there's regime change detection. So classification is just asking, what do I think is the regime that I'm currently in? Am I bull, bear, or neutral, or I don't know? And then change detection is constantly saying, based on what I'm seeing right now, what do I think is coming next? That's, that's about as close to a crystal ball as we get. It's, there's no guarantee, but that's what it's trying to do. And then we run those brains at a sector, an industry, and a broad market level. So you have thousands of neural nets dealing with everything from Netflix or Disney or, what, or IBM or whatever they're looking at at a discrete level and talking up the food chain. So whether the classification or change detection engines are finding favorable conditions within Disney doesn't determine whether or not the sector or industry engines find favorable conditions across the industry. So you could be trying to solve um, problems just at the discrete level. Yeah, that doesn't look great for me. I don't think we're going to add it to the portfolio. Whereas if you have, let's say, in a, in a, a localized collapse, the most recent being the regional bank collapse in the United States this past spring, now you'll have classification and change detection engines firing from the financial sectors all the way up through the sector and industry and up into broad market, all sort of agreeing that there's challenge here. So that's, that's how they're all collaborating together. And you get yes, no, up and down, add, subtract at the discrete level, and then within the sectors and industries, broad markets as well. That makes sense. Now, giving money managers the flexibility to enter and exit positions based upon market conditions is often sold as one of the benefits of actively managed portfolios. How does DIP compare to active management and what types of market conditions is it built for? I would say that you could probably appropriately classify DIP as extremely actively managed. So it's not, I mean, I think normally when you think about active management, you're thinking about Maybe monthly, more likely quarterly rebalances, uh, a team of analysts and managers that are culling through fundamental data, reading analyst research, conducting sector and industry analysis, etc., to determine ads, removals, or reweightings within the portfolio. But DIP does not work like that. And in fact, AI is not very good at that type of management. Um, uh, because I like the analogies here, let's use another one. Uh, it would be like uh, if you had AI driving your Tesla. So you're in a self-driving car and the AI is responsible for that. Do you really want it to analyze the road conditions like once every three minutes or it'll just review once every five minutes or do you want it to do it like a thousand times a second? You want it to do it a thousand times a second. And so it's very similar to what DIP does. So DIP is daily rebalancing. 
um, because it has access to, I mean, we ingest the, the market every day at the tick level, and we compare that to 220 terabytes of tick level historical data. The system conducts 2 billion discrete examinations before rebalancing every single day. And that's what helps it makes its decisions on what to add, what to subtract, and what to reweight. And that is actually where AI is strongest. It's strongest in the very short term because those are the patterns that hold up the best. You have an AI system and you ask it, where do you think Microsoft will be in three months? It has no idea whatsoever, not a clue. But depending on the market conditions, it can have relative certainty of where it might be tomorrow or the next day. So that's what DIP uses. It's very short-term mean reversion, one to seven days generally. But as you say, very, very active. Switching gears, let's talk now about the composition of DIP's portfolio. How many stocks does it own and how often does the portfolio change? So generally it'll hold in the 20 to 70 uh, name range. Um, we rank, so again, we're, we're looking for specific criteria that we find uh, have a high correlation to this low to high mean reversion. So it's, it's not going to include names that are on a tear, that are running away. You know, when, um, when AI burst out in the spring and you had about nine stocks out of the S&P leading that charge, um, they weren't included in DIP's portfolio because none of them were in DIP's beforehand. So it sticks to its trading ideology. It's not going to suddenly put on its Momo hat and say, wow, that's really running. I think I'll go buy that. It's looking for these specific conditions. And we categorize... Uh, our picks in, in five tiers, so tier one, two, three, four, five. And in our, in our development of DIP, we found that tier one and tier two were fairly reliable and, and contributed positive P&L. Tier three, four, and five were still good, but they didn't change the P&L profile over time. They just used more money. So when you're talking about excess capital, so Let's take an example. You have a market condition that's not overly favorable to dips. So you're getting a low number, 20, less than 20, perhaps. And because we have specific uh, weighting and diversification rules within dip, you end up with potentially a, an excess capital scenario. And our custodian asked us when we first invented dip, you know, what, what, what is your policy for excess capitalization? So you've got like, what, just cash sitting there doing nothing? Well, that's not very responsible as an asset manager. We had the option of using tier three, four, and five, but as the manufacturer, we knew that we weren't going to add positive P&L if we did that. We knew that that wasn't to the investor's benefit. It was just justification for holding more money. And we didn't think that that was responsible on a, on a functional or ethical level. So what we also use is a weighted blend of index ETFs. When we can't find enough dips uh, outside of tier one and tier two, or within tier one and tier two to make up the portfolio, we use this weighted blend of large cap index ETFs that uh, we believe uh, will outperform any one of those index ETFs over the long term. So because it's a weighted blend, it's not going to outperform the leader in the moment. If the Qs is on a tear, that's going to outperform the weighted blend. But if you were to look at the Qs or Diamonds or Spy or whatever it is over the long term, our belief is that the weighted blend is a responsible way to use the capital, give some outperformance, we hope, um, and still be well diversified, which is part of our investment ideology. 
And how do you see investors and advisors using an ETF like DIP inside a diversified portfolio? Well, we've never been a proponent that, you know, DIP should be like a huge holding or your only holding. Just like I'm, I'm sure the, the, you know, I'm sure the creators of Spy wouldn't say that, you, that that's it. That's your portfolio. Just that you're just going to hold that. So our, our goal with it was to add outperformance to broad index beta tracking offerings. So it doesn't matter what, you know, what you're using to track, let's say the S&P, which is our, which is our uh, benchmark. Um, you're probably allocating a responsible and conservative amount to something, whether it's SPY or IVV or whichever vehicle you're going to use to do that. And what we designed DIP to, to be was complementary. So instead of that whole allocation to something that's going to broadly track the S&P, maybe consider adding some portion of that allocation to DIP. DIP uses the exact same components. It has very robust risk mitigation mechanisms built in. Certainly the last, if you look at our last 90 days, we're, we're almost double the S&P. We've outperformed every other index ETF. Um, so it is very capable of doing that in market conditions that aren't just runaways. The last 90 days have not been a runaway market condition, not been overly favorable to anybody. So you're using the same components, but what we're doing is we're trying to opt in and opt out, which obviously the index ETFs are not doing. They're just a buy and hold scenario. So maybe you would start with 10% of what you were gonna allocate to that type of an ETF in dip, try it out, see if it gives you that little bit of outperformance, that little bit of edge. And then over time, you we hope, allocate uh, more and more to it. But we really just never saw it at a point where it displaced uh, the other because they're designed to do different things. All right, we need to leave it there. Thanks so much, Ryan, for sharing insights. And we look forward to catching up with you soon. Thank you very much again for having us on. It's been great to be here. To learn more about DIP and Kaiju ETF Advisors, be sure to visit kaijuetfadvisors.com. I'm Thalia Hayden, and we'll see you on the next episode. Thanks for watching.